right, so Jacob Vanderslice, thanks for being on the show today, brother. I appreciate you being with us. Um, why don't you give, a, give our listeners just a little bit of background about yourself and kind of, you know, what you got going on today, and then uh, we'll jump right into it. Joe, good to see you, and thanks for having us on today. We, we appreciate it. We're, uh, yeah. we're a private equity shop based out of Denver. I've got two partners. We've been doing real estate full-time for about 15 years. We initially started off doing residential, a bunch of fix and flips. Uh, we've covered a number of different asset classes within real estate over the years. We got into self-storage about six years ago, and that's been our main line of business since then. We've got uh, 30 self-storage facilities around the country, eight different states. Uh, we've got a few in Denver, but most of our portfolios in the Midwest and the Southeast. And um, we're on our most recent self-storage fund, and uh, we're in acquisition mode and stabilization mode with our portfolio. And we like the asset class because it's been historically resistant to recessions and downturns. It's repeatable. It's predictable. And uh, outside, outside our real estate practice, I've got two little boys. So those kind of keep, they, they kind of keep my wife and I busy uh, after hours and weekends and, and during the weekdays too, here and there. Um, like to play golf and fly airplanes and ski and mountain bike and road bike and climb and travel. Uh, obviously getting all that stuff done in the last year and a half has been a bit tougher between the world situation and the kids, but we do our best. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for being on as well. And uh, we appreciate you guys, you know, you guys being here and, you know, representing your company and uh, what you guys are doing. So um, I think it's cool. It's, we, we have so many uh, uh, similarities with, between our businesses. I actually been in the business about 15 years myself. We started single family fix and flip and now we're doing self-storage development. So uh, we're on the East Coast. So uh, we haven't kind of run into each other yet, but it's interesting how uh, there's a lot of, lot of uh, similarities there. But um, to walk us through, I mean, what, what I'm, I'm curious actually, uh, and I know my listeners are as well, but what, what helped do you make that transition between um, or how did you land in self-storage? Let's, let's go there, right? Because you, you did a lot of volume in the single family world. We did. And that's a business that's still near and dear to my heart. If the market ever turns into a situation where it makes sense to do that again in volume, uh, we'd be excited about that. But there's just uh, not a lot of deals out, right, out there right now. The market's very inflated. Um, my partner, Wade Buxton, his family built a self-storage facility back in the mid-2000s in California. And he, he kind of helped them develop the project and stabilize it and lease it up. So we learned a little bit about the asset class back then. And we, we had been exploring it for a couple of years leading up to 2015. And no one wants to do a deal with you when it's your first deal, right? It doesn't matter whether you've done a thousand houses or town home development, whatever the case might be. If it's your first venture into a new asset class, people want to kind of wait and see. So we tied up a land parcel in downtown Denver and we roadshowed it around town and all of our responses from different investors were, hmm, looks like a good deal. And then it kind of stopped there. And the last group we took it to was the first group that said yes. And they wanted to do it kind of programmatically with us. So we developed a few projects with them in Denver, kind of a co-GP situation. We still own all the facilities we built with them. Um, and then we, we kind of moved on from there, uh, raising our own direct to, direct to investor capital. We did a few syndications. Uh, launched our first storage fund about three years ago, two and a half years ago. And then uh, we launched our second self-storage fund in January of this year. And it's really been, you know, beyond single family and some development and some infill retail projects, it's been one of the few asset classes that we've touched where we've been able to scale effectively and make an actual business out of it versus being transactional. And uh, that's why we like it. So yeah. that's our main focus now. That's how we got started. And I think we'll be focused on this for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's funny, man. You sound a lot like me. We're about three years behind you. I'm three years into the industry. And it's funny what you said about raising money for the first deal. We we probably did 
30, $40 million in private money doing single family fix and flips for 12 years, right? And when I did my first deal, I didn't get private money out of any of my existing investors for the first deal, right? It was like, it was like pulling teeth, trying to get them to come on board with, hey, we're going to do self-storage now. And they were like, whoa, 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 what do you mean you do self-storage? We've done hundreds of deals together. What are you talking about? Oh, no, I'm not doing that. And then we went and raised the money outside of our current private investors. And they were all like, I can't believe, you know, it's unbelievable that you're able to do that. Why, you know, and now it's like, now they all want to be on board with deal five, six, seven. Now they're interested in, you know, so it's just, it's, it's, I don't know if you find that funny how, uh, you know, people, people want to, um, they don't want to be on board with the first one, but then when they see you start to have some success, all of a sudden they're back in your corner again, they become fans of yours again. Isn't that interesting how that happens? Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to blaze a trail with you, uh, or yeah. very few do. Sometimes yeah. they do. And you just have to make sure that, uh, that blazing the trail goes smoothly and you'll raise more money. And yeah. we still see that too. I mean, we've done a lot of deals. Um, our most recent fund, we're raising $30 million. We're about halfway through. We've had some big shops who want to invest, but it's it's almost it's kind of the same problem as getting started. But as you grow, they want to write a check for maybe twenty five million, but they don't want to be any bigger than twenty percent of the capital stack. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, well, we're gonna to have to wait a while to call you back because we definitely can't accommodate that right now. But sure. it's a, it's an ongoing thing as you yeah. as you grow. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about, you know, in, in the history of you know, this 15 years of growth and, 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 and creating new opportunity and finding ways to scale and getting out of that transactional, you know, uh, uh, business, you've obviously had some favorite failures. You've obviously had some scary moments. You've had some times where you were like, man, am I crazy for doing this? You know, g- give me some of your favorites, you know, thoughts and stories that have happened across this, you know, this, this decade and a half, you know, journey of yours. I'll give you a, a generalization first, and I'll give you a couple little uh, little bad deal stories. And the generalization is really taking many years to realize that wealth creation in real estate should not be should not be approached from a transactional standpoint. It should be approached from an income and repeatable di- distributable cash flow standpoint. Mm-hmm. And it took us a lot of time to learn that. Um, if you're whether it's a retail deal or a single family development deal, whatever it might be you have to keep buying and selling to make money. And over the years, we realized that this is this is sustainable, but it's a little bit riskier. It's very tax disadvantageous. Uh, you pay a lot of ordinary income tax when you're constantly trading. You get yourselves in situations where uh, you're 1031-ing over and over again. Uh, we have a deal in Denver, for example. It's probably worth $8 million. Um, it's a third generation 1031. And if we sold that property today and did not exchange, our tax bill would be greater than our cash proceeds. Not our profit, but the deal would not spit out enough cash to pay the tax bill if we did 1031. So transacting is good. It creates capital and it builds your bankroll to go out and do bigger deals. But we like the idea of building and operating a cash flowing asset base. So that's one thing we've learned. And we really kind of didn't arrive to that conclusion until maybe three years ago. And we're still working on getting there. Um, specific deals that uh, didn't go well over the years that I just remember like they were yesterday. A um, couple, couple fix and flips on the single family side, no specific examples. I'll get to one specific, but just deals that had major construction execution problems, doing major scopes of work, additions or, or adding a second story, bad contractors, time ebbs away, your carry costs are high, uh, change orders, people stealing money. Um, but one, one kind of nuclear deal that I'll never forget, uh, we built a, a single family home out of shipping containers. And 
that's kind of a hot thing right now. And by the way, this single family home has a YouTube video and it's probably had like 200,000 views. It's useless because, you know, it was a disaster project, but none of our other marketing videos have that many views, but this deal that we want to forget about has all these YouTube views. And the dream of the concept was we could go out and buy these containers, repurpose them in a factory in Nebraska, ship them on a flatbed truck to Denver, put the structure up in like weeks and, and then kind of stitch it back together and sell it. And our cost basis would be a lot lower than doing stick built and our speed would be a lot faster than doing stick build. Well, we found out over time that as you cut up these containers, the welding and the structural reinforcement you have to redo um, is very expensive, very time consuming. There's multiple jurisdictions like the city and the state who have their hands in the permitting process. They don't really talk to each other very well. Normally it's just the city if you're doing a stick build mm -hmm. property. And uh, we eventually sold it and got it done and we learned a lot. And I guess we didn't learn that much. All we learned was don't build houses. Don't do that again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's really, that's really all we learned. We, <sighs> it seems like every year we get, uh, we get less stupid and yeah. we learn more of not what to do versus what to do. And uh, that was a big takeaway from that. There's probably a better way to go execute those types of projects, but um, that uh, the execution was not good on our part, but you know what? That was cool. That the reason I ask you these things, Jacob, though, is it's so important for our listeners who have this like analysis paralysis about doing deals. The, the realization that the, the successful people that come onto this podcast that have found a way to scale, that have found a way to automate cash flow, that have finally got a taste of the promised land, right? You didn't get there by just waking up one day and saying, oh, it's self-storage. I'm going to build these scalable assets. And I'm going to start making cash flow, right? You had to do stuff along the way to course correct. You had to execute. Oh, this isn't right for me. You know, I'll do something different. I'll do some more of this. I'll do some more of that. And you have to take action in different directions, you know, kind of fail a little bit, fumble a little bit, and then find your way in a different direction uh, in, in order to inevitably get to that promised land, right? Instead of just sitting back and watching other people do it, right? The reason we find these, these end games that are so promising is because we're constantly chasing the next thing, trying to figure it out until finally it happens. We're not sitting on the sidelines watching other people do it, waiting for the right time to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I don't, I don't dispense advice too often, but a lot of folks will ask, how do I get started in real estate? And there's some resources out there. There's books, there's podcasts like yours. You can learn some little vignettes, but the only, the only real way to learn is to go out and do a deal. And there's no perfect deal. There's no, there's no perfect uh, downside mitigation deal. There's no perfect deal. It's going to be a home run. And frankly, the home runs often are unexpected. You'll underwrite yeah. a deal, you'll put it into your model and you'll just blow it out of the water and you'll think, wow, how did that happen? I didn't think that was going to yeah. happen. But yeah. the best way to learn is to get out there and, and try and do something. And yeah. uh, don't don't have an epic failure. But if you lose a little bit of money or make a little bit of money, uh, the education you'll get from that experience is is much more important. Yeah. So yeah. go do a deal. Yeah, the home runs are almost accidental at sometimes, right? It's like when that when that that buyer walks in and says like, "Oh, I want this add-on," and, and and you end up making an additional twenty-five grand where you didn't expect it, or you know, the, the market appreciates twenty percent overnight, and you just happen to be sitting on that house for too long because you had overruns in, in 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 your in your schedule, and next thing you know, you wake up and the house is worth more than you initially thought it was going to because it took you too long to build, right? It's like one of these things where it's like, oh, now all of a sudden I have a home run. I didn't I didn't anticipate that, 
but you know, far often again, I think going back to it, you know, people are trying to cherry pick these home runs and it just comes from doing volume. You got it. And that's why it's a transactional business when it comes to, especially the single family world, right? It's a little bit different when we're talking about big commercial, we're talking about cash flowing assets and scalable, larger commercial construction. Um, but when you get into it, when you're starting out and you're doing, you know, duplexes, singles, quads, you, you got you to gotta keep doing them until you're starting to find your footing and you start to create some opportunity for yourself. Yeah. And, and this, this market over the last however many years has really absolved a lot of folks of sins that they might not have otherwise been absolved of. Um, yeah. All boats float on the rising tide. And there's plenty of projects that we see around town, the different markets we operate in where there were major cost overruns, major delays, but the developer or the investor benefited from higher rents than they expected and compressed cap rates. And yeah. those two things can really wash out any cost overruns or any issues they have with the project. Someday that's gonna change. And yeah. I thought that was gonna change last year when the entire uh, pandemic kicked off. We thought we were gonna clean up and buy a bunch of deals and stuff was gonna go on sale. And with the exception of maybe hotel and, and retail and office to a degree, that didn't happen. It was the mm -hmm. opposite. And uh, I don't know what the next catalyst that's going to be out there that's going to create a, some buying opportunities, but certainly not here yet. And a lot of folks who got into the business the last three to five years uh, have really benefited from the upswing. It's been hard to screw up. Yeah, <laughs> it almost has been to a degree, right? And, and you're right. I think a lot of people were like tensing up thinking like, you know, I got to hold on because this is going to be a rough market. And then they got the complete opposite. And it's and it's been it's been I hate to say easy for a, for a lot of folks, especially in the real estate game. Um, yep. If you're in the right industry, you know, if you're in the right uh, the right sector. Um, well, digress a second. Tell us a little bit about Van West. What's the what's the structure? I mean, you've done 30 deals. Um, do you guys consider yourselves a, a pure developer? Are you operating these deals? Are you managing your own deals? Like. What happens when you guys take a deal down? Do you, you're developing yourself? Um, do you hire GCs? Like what's, what's the process look like? Well, we'll, we'll focus mainly on self-storage. So we, we've done three types of storage projects over the years. One is ground-up development. Two is repositioning from a non-storage use into self-storage, like multi-story office or industrial or, or big-box retail, converting into self-storage. And the third is pretty easy, just buying existing storage deals. So we've done all the above. The last three years, we're mainly focused on buying existing self-storage facilities that are um, inefficiently managed, above market expense loads, below market rent, sometimes they don't have a website. We rebrand them, we manage them, we grow NOI and we create cash flow. On the management side, as you know, property management, whatever the asset class is, is a, it's a painful business. It's, a, it's, very, it's very customer oriented. People think that self-storage is kind of fire and forget. It's not. It's very much an operational business. It's almost like hospitality to a degree. People mm -hmm. are moving in, moving out constantly. Rates are changing uh, sometimes by the day or by the month. Um, we used to outsource our management to the national REITs uh, years ago. And we were, we were dazzled with their algorithms and their marketing and their branding. And we realized over time, they're good companies, but we realized over time that our interests were to a degree kind of misaligned with theirs. There's a lot of revenue streams in self-storage that add to the top line that some of them don't let you share in. One good example is tenant insurance. It's kind of like car rental insurance. You probably decline it because you have an auto policy or a credit card that covers it, but a lot of people don't. The margin on that's enormous. Same thing in self-storage. Um, so I realized over time that just the revenue side, they didn't 
they didn't really align with what our expectations were. The expense loads were not well thought out. We had a property, for example, two properties in Denver, one with a big parking lot, one with a very small parking lot. And the management company gave us a snow removal budget for, for a given year that was the exact same for both properties. So that was an example of kind of nobody looking at the, at the, at the yeah. details. So we formed our own management platform about three years ago. It's called Clear Home Self Storage. And we self-manage our entire portfolio with the exception of uh, four stores in Denver that are kind of legacy deals that we have a local operator run with another partnership. Um, but as painful as a management platform is, that's really, that's really kind of uh, controlling our destiny, growing NOI, growing cash flow, controlling expenses. And outsourcing that is something that we realized over time just didn't make sense, frankly, because we care more than somebody else does who doesn't own our deal. Mm -hmm. So we self-manage everything. We've got about, including my two partners, we've got about 30 employees. Um, that's increasing as we buy more facilities in the coming months. We've got on-site managers, regional managers, area managers. We've got a controller in the office, um, HR folks, accounting, uh, operations, um, capital raising. So decent size employment base and uh, the support from that employment base really comes from our cash flow. We don't have to necessarily go out and buy, sell deal, buy and sell deals to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about us and the management platform. That's amazing. That's amazing, man. And you guys did all that in six years. Yeah. Build the airplane as we fly it. And yeah. we're still building the airplane. I love that. And then, so what's the vision, you know, in the next five years, where do you guys see yourselves? And, and is, do you stay in self-storage? Do you start to diversify? Well, we'll stay in self-storage as long as the industry makes sense. And at least as, as long as we're finding acquisition opportunities, we think the acquisitions that we've made are going to continue to make sense for years to come. Uh, for the rest of this year, we're working on closing, uh, working on closing out our most recent self-storage fund. We've, we've deployed about half of our capital allocation. We've got a few deals under contract to close, uh, scheduled to close in August and September. And the goal is by the end of this year to deploy uh, around $100 million in total costs, which will equate to about $65 million in debt and $35 in equity. Our fund is 30, but we're likely going to increase that to 35 just based on a couple of deals that we're, we're chasing. Uh, for next year, we're going to launch our next fund, and we're still working on what that looks like. We might layer in some uh, a development component to it, uh, not not a big piece of the capital stack, but we're we're starting to see more opportunities out there on the development side that we weren't seeing before. As I'm sure you know, development has has kind of plateaued and it's mm -hmm. going down a little bit. The volume is so we're seeing a little bit more opportunity there. Um, next fund will probably target 50 million in equity. Uh, this most recent one, one again is 30. And then uh, five years from now, you know, it feels like an eternity, uh, but a lot of our goal setting is five years out. And it's amazing how quickly five years comes, right? Like sure. five years ago from now, is just like it was yesterday. Yeah. So we don't have any specific goals for that five-year number, but our, our general goal is just recurring predictable revenue streams that, yeah. uh, that make a good living for... Uh, for our employees, uh, for our team, and for my partners, and for our investors without, again, necessarily buying or selling a deal. Love it. Love it. So, uh, Jacob, I love to ask people when they come on the show, I love to ask them their biggest, like, non-financial, non-family goal, and yours was to write a book. So, tell us, what would you write the book about? Well, I... I've been uh, I've been journaling since college and fits and starts. Sometimes I won't journal for for months. Sometimes I'll do it every day. And my college journal was like fifteen hundred pages in Word. 
and I like writing and the stuff I've seen over the years is just uh, in this business. I, I was in the fire service before I got into real estate. So I saw a lot of crazy stuff there and I've seen more crazy stuff in real estate from, mm. from the, the sellers and the buyers to the tenants, the contractors uh, buying at the foreclosure auctions. It's just been, it's been a fun ride and there's so many little vignettes out there. I'd like to just consolidate at some point and just talk about the story and the journey. And yeah. that's the book I'd like to write. Uh, I'm not sure what the title would be, but um, I don't know, like a real estate journey or something like that. And um, that's uh, not a top priority right now. There's a lot of other fires to fight, but uh, as we grow our recurring revenue streams and our passive cash flow, time will free up a little bit more to, to pursue more stimulating ventures like writing a book. Love it. Love it, man. Don't, don't, uh, don't hold back. Just go out and do it. That's all I can, that's all I can recommend. I just finished drafting or not uh, drafting uh, final editing my third book uh, on Sunday. And all I can say is that once you start doing it, it becomes addictive, right? Once you start yep. getting it out there, it becomes addictive. And, and every time you do it, it feels like it takes forever until you just like pull off the bandaid and do it. Like I've been sitting on this final draft for like six months and it took me three hours to do the final edits. Just, just kidding. What, what's the, what's the third book about? Uh, the third book is actually like, um, it's really about creating um, better uh, focus on your life and your business. Right. So it's called multiplicity. And the concept is really uh, creating great teams so that you can actually create more time freedom, more financial freedom, more freedom of purpose and freedom of relationships, um, creating a better lifestyle for yourself. Right. So many people build businesses that, that they turn into slaves of their own businesses, right? They create a job for themselves. And so, you know, I, I prefer to create businesses that create a great lifestyle for me and create great teams that can operate those businesses and, you know, learn to trust people that can go out there and do their job and do it really, really well and, and enjoy what they do, right? So, um, you know, kind of downplaying that, coaching my people how to have the, the type of life that they'd like to live inside of still working for a great team and having a great purpose inside of that. So it's kind of that, that the whole multiplication effect of teaching, you know, the leaders inside of your team to be great leaders as well. So uh, I, I can't I'm wait excited to check for it out. It. Yeah. I'm excited for it, but um, cool, man. What else did I forget to ask you today? What else did you want to cover? Um, nothing specific. I, uh, I think uh, I'm obviously biased, but I think, Real estate should be at the cornerstone of anybody's wealth creation strategy, no matter what they do full time, no matter uh, no matter what they're focused on. You've got to have some a real estate component in your portfolio and it stood the test of time. It's a hard asset. It's got intrinsic value that's probably not going to go to zero. You could buy a stock today and the stock might go up 20 percent or down 20 percent, but your real estate's not going to do that in a day. And I think in an inflationary environment, controlling hard assets with a fixed cost of capital is a really good strategy, um, yeah. especially if you have short-term leases like self-storage or multifamily to a degree. Um, I think inflation's here to stay for a while. And if you're financing something at three and a half percent debt that's fixed for 10 or 15 or 20 years, however long it might be, and your revenue streams are increasing over time, that's a, that's a good strategy. Yeah, brother, I couldn't agree more. I mean, listen, I mean, you know, we're both a little bit biased on that, but you know, the fact remains that that you know some of the greatest wealth in, in our history has been through fixed assets, through real estate, through you know, it, it's a, it's a limited resource, right? It's it's dirt. There's only so much of it. We're building uh, great assets, and they're cash flowing. I love the industry too because you you had said it earlier. It's it's virtually recession proof. It's very interesting 
um, through COVID, just some of the some of the facts and figures with storage too. Um, through COVID, almost almost no change, right? I think they said public storage saw like a two and a half percent decrease in in that twelve months, and they already gained it back. You know, within like the first month of of, of you know things uh, starting to level off, whereas some of these other industries just got just got beat. You know, office got crushed. I mean, New York City went down. They said twenty two percent in office and. First time in 30 years that New York City has seen a, a decrease in, in office. Um, you know, just just certain things that um, storage seems to ride the wave and and be consistent. And uh, you know, just a very very interesting industry to me. So um, I applaud you for what you're doing. I think it's funny how we can live very very similar lives and run very very similar businesses on opposite coasts and literally have never run into each other so um it's funny how the world brings us together on this podcast so yeah we gotta gotta correct that moving forward (laughs) but uh yeah man i I appreciate you being on today i know the listeners gonna get a lot of value out of this how should they connect with you and uh how should they uh, reach out to you if they want to learn more about you and ben west go to our website which is vanwestpartners.com email me jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on linkedin jacob vanderslice awesome jacob vanderslice thanks for being on the show brother appreciate you thanks for having us joe appreciate it all right talk soon